Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. We're blessed to be here for another uh, session of our uh, seminars for our Institute of Catholic Culture. So welcome back to St. Francis de Sales. So now let us pray to our Blessed Mother here at Our Lady of Victory Hall uh, as we now begin another uh, wonderful uh, talk from Professor Cutterback. Name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We entrust ourselves under the protection and guidance of our Blessed Mother as we now pray, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, amen. Our Lady of the Rosary, pray for us. St. Francis de Sales, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you very much, Father Escalante. Our speaker this evening received a PhD in philosophy from the Catholic University of America in 1997. Dr. John Cuddeback writes and lectures on various topics including virtue, culture, natural law, contemplation, and friendship. A third order lay Dominican, he currently teaches in the philosophy department at Christendom College. His book, True Friendship, Where Virtue Becomes Happiness, was republished in 2010. He also writes for his blog titled Bacon from Acorns, in which he publishes his own reflections on philosophy and the household. Dr. Cuddeback is an avid gardener and hunter and lives with his wife and six children in the Shenandoah Valley. He is a frequent speaker for the ICC and was our first professor with the ICC Sophia Symposium, giving an in-depth introductory course on philosophy. So please join me in welcoming back to the Institute of Catholic Culture, Dr. John Cuddeback. Thank you, Monica. Good evening, everybody. Um, thanks a lot. It's a pleasure to come back. Um, Deacon Sabatino, or the former Deacon Sabatino, Father Hezekiah. Um, you all know that Deacon Sabatino was ordained and is now Father Hezekiah. Um, uh, oh, uh, this time has, has served up a, a, a tricky topic, um, understanding, understanding. Uh, to subtitle Objective Truth and Epistemological Relativism. We're going to hold off on the relativism until next week. So this week we're just going to kind of be at peace and not talk about, about anything ugly. We're going to just talk about beautiful things, human reason and a few beautiful aspects of it and try to come to a little deeper understanding of understanding. And then next week I'll tell you a little bit more at the end of today what, I, what I'd like to try to uh, focus on next time. But Sabatino, pardon me, Deacon uh, Father Hezekiah likes us to try to get basic philosophical principles into these very important things. 
epistemology, the study of human knowing, has always been a very important part of philosophy. It's a rather complicated one. One can get lost in the details. So I had to make some choices as to, okay, what exactly am I going to focus on? What am I going to try to do here? How general and how much down into the weeds do we go to try to come to some understanding of understanding? So I've chosen a few things and, and strung them together, chosen a few uh, quotations from Aristotle and St. Thomas that I think that you'll appreciate to try to give an overview, a sense of some of the beautiful thinking that has gone into the great tradition of trying to understand understanding. As usual, I am trying my best to go back and understand what wise people have said much better than I'll ever be able to but to enter into them and to try to glean some of those jewels and then to look at them together. And a particularly exciting aspect of this is it is at the heart of who we are. We will not understand ourselves unless we have an understanding of understanding. To understand understanding is absolutely central to understanding who we are for we are made for understanding. What exactly is that that we are made for? Well, we're going to try to understand that a little better here today. If you'd be so kind as to look at the opening quotation on your sheet, this is the very famous opening of Aristotle, probably his most significant, deepest work called his Metaphysics. This is the opening paragraph, the opening line being one of the most famous lines in Aristotle, and, it, and it's deeply significant. All men by nature desire to know. He's not referring here just to one desire among many. He is referring to a desire that is at the center of who we are at the center of human nature is a profound inclination, spin, tendency towards knowing. One thing Aristotle would absolutely assure you of is there is no such thing as a happy human being who does not have profound knowledge for we are designed to know, not just know anything, to know very specific, important things. And in the absence of knowing that, we have not become fundamentally who we are to become. By nature, we desire to know. We will not rest, even if we try to, we cannot rest until we see, until we understand certain things. Well, men by nature desire to know. And he, 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 he kind of he backs off and does this very kind of simple kind of thing, refers to something lower than the knowledge of which he's speaking. An indication of this as always, the body, what goes on in the body, 
is always a pointer, is always an indicator of the truths of the Spirit. What goes on in the body is always an indicator of the Spirit. An indication of this is the delight we take in our senses. By that, he means our five, particularly our five external senses. For even apart from their usefulness, they are loved for themselves. And above all others, the sense of sight. For not only with a view to action, but even when we are not going to do anything, we prefer seeing, one might say, to everything else. The reason is that this, most of all the senses, makes us know and brings to light many differences between things. Already, there's, there's, there's much going on here. There's a rich analogicity going on here. The, the word see, the word know, are, are always used in, in analogous ways. And you have to be, we're going to talk about that a little bit here today. You have to feel the analogy that's going on. When he begins, all men by nature desire to know. He's clearly referring most fundamentally to a higher kind of knowledge, just meaning reason or understanding or intellect. That's kind of knowledge in the most significant human way, what we do with this amazing power that we call reason, right? A word that we, we use all the time. Well, we have reason, we have intellect. Okay, just what in the world is that? We're going to try to talk a little bit more about that here today. But all men by, desire, by nature desire to know with our reason, with our intellect. But an indication of this is the delight we take in our senses. We know things with our senses also. You can, you can you say, does a, does a dog know anything? Does a spider know anything? There's a knowledge that comes on the sense level. And so we can refer to there being a knowledge there. An indication is the delight we take in our senses, for even apart from the usefulness, they are loved for themselves. Above all, there's a sense of sight. So he focuses our attention on we are so much about vision. Now, he wants you to feel the, again, analogicity of that word. We love to see with our eyes. But, but why? At the end of the day, is seeing with our eyes what's most central? Is that kind of what it's most all about? Is that what our nature is most yearning for? Or is it to ultimately see in a way that's deeper than what's seen with the eyes, but you have to see with your eyes first, and through your eyes you can come then to a deeper kind of knowledge. But already he's saying it's just do we not love particularly beautiful things to see? So he would point out us, unlike any other animals, unlike any other animals, we will delight just in seeing certain things. So when you come out to my part of the world and you go down Skyline Drive, there'll be that curious thing called an overlook, where all you're, all you're really supposed to do is pull over and get out and stand there and look. And it was worth stopping to just do that, because something very important is going on right now. And we love to do that in other Animals never do that. They're not ever interested in seeing for seeing's sake. 
That's what Aristotle is referring to there. So already just in a power that we share in common with the other animals, you see how we're so different from the other animals. Already in what we share with the other animals. That we're interested to just stop and see. Somehow points to, and you know, we feel, we know, there's a deeper seeing that this seeing is just a beginning of, just a pointer towards. I'm going to give you a, a, a couple of quick, if, if I may, uh, points of reflection. How, how do you begin to think about what it means to know something? How, how do you begin to reflect upon rationality or understanding itself? Let me remind you of something about philosophy. Philosophy at its best is always going to something that in some sense is right before your eyes. It's right there to be seen by you. It's not, if, if philosophers are immediately running off and talking about very abstract, abstruse, faraway things, you want, you want to worry. The best of philosophers in Aristotle was so much this way. They begin with things that are kind of right there. They're very much in common human experience. But you stop and you really look and you try to understand. So we're gonna we're gonna pick this up. So we're gonna we're gonna be just we're gonna be philosophizing here together, ladies and gentlemen. We're gonna do our best. What, what are we gonna do? We're gonna what are we gonna pick up and kind of turn around before our eyes right now? We're gonna pick up and turn around before our eyes something that's right there all the time. Our very power to know, our power to understand the power called reason, the power that Aristotle puts in the very definition of man when he, when he defines man as the rational animal. Do we stop and ask, what does that mean? Well, we're, we're picking that up, we're putting it before our eyes, so we're going to turn it around a little bit. So just to, just to help us do that, I want to just throw a couple of, this might be a little oddball, but I want to I do it with you anyway. Do a little mental experiment with me for a moment. Picture right now, if you will, a beautiful natural scene. But in this natural scene, there's, there's actually not going to be any animals at all. I want you to picture this scene, the beautiful fields, there's mountains, there's rivers, there's trees. So there's things that are alive here. So pic picture this. Now, now here's the thing. Now try to picture it without there being any power of reason. Or, at this point, a power of sensation either. There's no animals. So here's this, these beautiful fields, the river, the mountains, the trees. Now, now you and I are picturing this, and it might be very beautiful, and this is, could be an exciting thing for us to picture. But now think with me for a moment. What if there is no power of reason? So kind of Inside here, what we're looking at, consider this, th there's no power of apprehension or knowledge at all, either of the two kinds of knowledge, sensation or reason, either one of them, because there's no animals here. There's just trees and lakes and streams and mountains. So what's it like when there's no power of apprehension or knowledge? What's it like? If nothing can perceive this, I ask you, 
and it's, it's going to sound a little, little unusual. Can we even speak of there being beauty here? There's literally nothing that sees anything. Picture, picture being maybe the gr biggest, most noble tree that there is in this scene. A tree knows precisely nothing. It perceives, in any proper sense of that term, absolutely nothing. So I want you, what I'm inviting you to, to kind of picture with me is, without the power of knowledge, what you have is absolute darkness. A, a, a tree, a, a tree is growing and there's sunlight all around, but nothing can perceive it. So it's there, but there's nothing to perceive it. I'm not here questioning objectivity of truth, but it would be an inch, it's even interesting, I'm not going to push this too far, it'd be interesting to ask, in what sense is there truth if there's literally nothing to perceive it? What I'm inviting you to, to, to consider here, ladies and gentlemen, is how absolutely meaningless the entire natural world would be if there weren't something to perceive it. Remove knowledge, remove perception, and, and, and what do you have? I'm one of the greatest lovers of trees you're ever going to find, but if you can't see a tree, what's a tree for? Add into that picture now animals. Let's just add in sense knowledge. So now there's, now there's sense perception. And this is going to be a hard one for you, ladies and gentlemen, because you know what one of the hardest things to do? One of the hardest things to do is to distinguish between what sense perception is and what reason is. But right now, there's now sense perception here. There's animals. There's bears. There's a bear in my backyard the other night. It's very interesting to shine my flashlight out there. And there were these two eyes. I thought, ooh, those eyes are too far apart to be a raccoon. So there's a, there's, a, there's a bear in this scene. There's raccoons. There's birds. They see. They see colors, sounds, smell things. Now I invite you to consider how empty this world would be. How very, very empty. Even if there's a perception of all those sights, sounds, and smells, if there's no power of reason that can comprehend the whole and see how everything fits in and find it beautiful. The senses themselves cannot perceive that. It takes reason to be able to put that all together and have it be meaningful so again, I say to you, try to picture a world wherein there is not the human power of reason to take it in and be amazed. And I tell you, this is a, this is a world that is functionally meaningless. All I'm trying to do in a strange kind of way there is to kind of lift up this power of understanding before us and have us realize 
whatever exactly it is, it's this astounding gem that stands out dramatically, dramatically from everything else around it and in some sense makes everything else have meaning. Finally, would you, would you consider just two other quickies? I'm just going to invite you to, to, think, to, to try to focus your attention for a moment on the power of reason and its importance and trying to focus a little bit on what it does. Can you consider saying goodbye to someone that you have known, whatever exactly that means, for years, and you're saying goodbye? And I've always thought that one of the most appropriate things to say when saying goodbye to somebody is to say, it has been an honor to know you. And whether I ever see you again or not, to have known you has made me be someone different than I ever would have been. I will never be the same for it because I have known you. What is that? It's something. Because I know every one of us in the room knows the power of what was just said. To have known another human being is on a planet by itself. What is that verb relating to. One other quick thing that's very much similar to that one, very much like that one, just special moments that you've had in your life, and, and we can all perhaps think of our own, and th those of us who are a little older or not can perhaps think of, think of more. The moment that you first realized, and then fill in, fill in the blank, and, and, and how it was these are the moments that your life is about, I present for consideration. The moment you understood, somebody loves me. I'm in love. I now understand for the first time, perhaps, what my parents did for me. I had not understood now I understand. I understand now for the first time, I have insight for the first time into, again, fill in the blank. That moment you first saw X, maybe you had a conversion moment and there was a moment that you first understood, oh my goodness, there is a God. And he cares. And now I know. Just, I just wanted to bring those things before you as far as lifting up this thing called understanding and, and just realizing we have here, ladies and gentlemen, we have a mirandum, a Latin word just meaning something to wonder at. You have a power and I have a power that is at the epicenter of our being, and that power is simply called reason or understanding. And it has somewhat, I hope, come into relief by just considering a few of those most profoundly human of moments. So let's, let's get a little bit more specific now and do a little bit of nuts and bolts work and ask, how does this 
power of understanding work and what does it do. So I'm going to give you a little bit more technical here epistemology, and then I'm going to pan back out to some more general points. The first thing we need to focus on, and this is very difficult, is what is the difference between reason or rationality, intellection, I'm using all those interchangeably. English has several words here, our reason, our intellect, our understanding, using all those interchangeably. That versus sensation. One of the really neat things, and I just completed teaching a course in human nature, one of the great gifts that God has given us, he didn't have to do this, he gave us other animals that have sense powers like we do, but don't have reasoning like we do. And so it helps us understand what our own sense powers are, because you can look at other animals, and one thing you can know for sure, and, and ladies and gentlemen, at this point, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna take this for granted that you're willing to go here with me. Again, if we kind of had to prove everything as we go along to the naysayer, then we kind of wouldn't get anywhere. Well, how do we know animals don't have reason? If you said to me right now, how do we know animals don't have reason? I'm a very simple answer. They don't act like they have reason. It's obvious that they don't have reason. They do some rather amazing things. But it's, it's always rather remarkable to me that those who seem bent upon, bent upon having us be the same as, the, as animals, they're so fascinated. And again, there is something fascinating. But, but when a monkey takes a banana and figures out an incredibly primitive something about that banana, everyone goes, oh my goodness, that's just like us. Really? There's, there's, this is where what's, I think, appropriate is the great line of a medieval philosopher very early whose name was Dionysius. He said, the higher of the lower does approach to the lower of the higher. It's a brilliantly important point. The highest of the animals, it's as though they were pushing towards rationality. That's why dogs are astounding. They're astounding, but they're not rational. Right? They're way above a lot of other animals. They approach like unto reason, but they're still obviously not there. Right, so I'm going to take that for granted. So we have, we have this power of reason. We have, we have the senses. So you can look at, we can look at what these other animals do and see, hey, wow, we, we do that too. We smell sights, sounds, vision, just like the animals. That is a way of knowing. It's a way of apprehending. What's the difference between that and reason? One of the reasons, ladies and gentlemen, that it's difficult to see the difference, and this is part of the beautiful thing of who we are as rational animals, we always are using both level of powers at the same time. And so unless you're very careful in sorting it out, we'll confuse things. The way I like to put it is, is, is this. Every time we're using our reason, we are using our reason in and through and with our senses. So it's very easy, it's very easy to conflate them for instance, you, we might say something like this. I, I saw that she loves me. You saw that? With your eyes? Well, yes, she, she smiled. Can your eyes see that she loves you? Your eyes can, can perceive a curve of the lips that's a smile. 
Reason is always looking through our eyes. Right now, I know as you're looking at me, I understand that you are thinking with me. I can't see that you are thinking, although we might say that. I see, I see that you're thinking. I can't see with my eyes that you're thinking, though I'm looking at you with my eyes and I perceive with my reason that we are all thinking together. Do you see what I'm saying of, of the trickiness of reason is perceiving in and through our senses? And so how do you sort out which is the one perceiving and which is the other? That's part of the trickiness. All right, well, let me just make a couple suggestions here. Sense experience, ladies and gentlemen, gets directly at the outside of things. I'm going to say this first, first non-technically and then give you a technical term. Sensation, pretty clearly, gets at the outside of things. It gets at the surface. The way that Aristotle and St. Thomas would express that is to say that it gets at certain accidental qualities. For Aristotle and St. Thomas, sensation always perceives accidental qualities of things. It's never able to go to the heart of the reality. It's never able to go to the very nature of the thing, to conceive, for instance, the substance of what the thing is. But the senses do get at the outside. They perceive the accidental qualities. All right, now let's, let's use that as a point of comparison. Intellect is from the Latin word intellegere, which literally means to read deeply in. To read deeply in. Intellegere, if you've heard of lexio, legere, that's the Latin verb to read. So the word in Latin for intelligence is a power to read into things. Now, when you, have to, when you say read in, read in in English can mean that you put something, I was reading into what you said. That's not what's being said. It's, in, in other words, a, a seeing below the surface. This is perfect. What a perfect word for this power that we're trying to now begin to understand. We have the power to go inside, to go beyond the accidental qualities and get at the essence, the what, the nature of the thing. So the key way that I like to say what the difference is between what senses do, and this that we share in common with the animals, our senses, their senses, get at the accidental qualities, which is on the outside. But then reason is able to read inside, is able to see through and in. And then most of all, what, what's the phrase? You're going to hear me say this a number of times here yet today, this evening, to grasp what the thing is, the nature of the thing, the essence of the thing. I don't want to make an overly big deal of the technical terminology, but some of you are more interested in that than others, and so I am going to at least advert to that if you'd like to kind of take a special note of that. The term what is a kind of a technical term here, or the what or whatness, or the essence, or the nature. Those are all being used interchangeably here as the best way to capture what you would say the proper object of what our intellect or reason can get at. It can get at the nature, the essence, or the what's of things. When I look at one of you, I don't just see various accidental qualities the way the senses do. I immediately grasp and can conceptualize 
this is a human being. And I have a concept of human being. A concept is a likeness in my mind of that essence or that nature or that way of being. When I see a tree, my senses perceive the various accidental qualities, but my intellect is able to grasp what it is, the essence or the nature of this thing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of leave that at that for the moment, and in, in, in the question and answer, feel free to, you know, to like a philosophy class and ask me to, to try to explain that a little bit more. If you've studied Plato at all, Plato was the great first one to really focus our attention on what does the intellect of man grasp? It grasps the forms. Plato's term for what I just called the essence, the nature, the what, Plato called that the forms. There are, there's a world of unchanging forms, ways of being that our intellect can grasp hold of, can understand, can conceptualize. Plato's term is form. Aristotle tends to use the term nature. Now a key, a key kind of how do we get there? I'm going to look a little bit more at the nuts and bolts, then I'm going to again jump, pan out and make a couple other broad points. Abstraction. For Aristotle, for St. Thomas, the key thing that you need to understand about how the intellect works, this is a technical term here, is by abstraction. Abstraction has come from a Latin term which literally means basically to lift something out. Human knowledge is abstracted or abstractive. All right, so what exactly are we focusing on there? How does this work? This is what the senses cannot do. The senses perceive these various accidental qualities. What the intellect does, and, and here's in, in, our, in our intellect, the human mode of knowing, it takes a little while for it to get up and running. Here's the fascinating thing. Very small children, there's very little intellect going on. You know, the, their world of perception is much more like the animals. There's always, always something more going on in a child than an animal, even from the start. It's very important to understand that. At the same time, the intellect is, is, is very low functioning. You have to build up a facility, the, the child has to build up a facility to use his senses well, and slowly, ever so slowly, that amazing, what do you say, I keep using the word power, bulb, light, that is shining within can start to look through the senses. And in, those, in what is sensed, that power can lift something out. Here's an example of abstraction. The term danger. Have you ever tried to, what, what, what age would it be? Depending on the child, it could be two, three, four. Try to use the word danger with a child that's very young, who, doesn't, who hasn't already gotten to the point where he knows what that term means, and you're trying to convey what it means. How do we always, how do, how do we always try to bring about a concept to an understanding of something in someone? We need to use examples. So picture this one with a three-year-old saying, okay, that's dangerous. Let's just say the child's able to enunciate with, to you, I don't know what the term danger means. 
Okay? You say, all right, well, um, danger. All right, so danger is like that sharp knife or because it can cut you, right? Or it's like the hot stove or it's like a loaded gun. Picture, picture the child. Hot stove, loaded gun, sharp knife. I mean, those things are all very different from one another. But imagine the confusion. But then imagine the moment, and this is a very important instruction in, in seeing how the intellect works. Imagine the moment where the child's intellect goes, danger. Right there is an abstraction. What we mean here by the term abstraction is this. It took all of those three, it saw what was common, and it left behind what was not common. It lifted out, this can hurt me. And it had to leave behind various, all other kinds of characteristics. All the term danger means is, this can hurt me. The intellect was able to fasten on that in abstract, meaning take, lift out a concept of danger and had to leave a whole bunch of things behind. If it doesn't know what to leave behind, it will have no concept of what danger is. Does this make sense? Are we together? So what I'm, what I'm conveying you, in, in any time that the human intellect is grasping what something is, it's having to abstract. It's having to look at a number of circumstances, a number of individual instances, and then lift out some common way of being, some kind, some nature, some what. How are we doing? Take a peek, if you would, here at the second quotation on your handout. And what I want you to see here is something that is worth an entire lecture in itself, but I just want to quickly emphasize to you, and that is the central role of a power called imagination in all human knowing. And I'd be remiss, I think, in not pointing this out in our treatment here. Aristotle, hence no one can learn or understand anything in the absence of sense. What he means by sense is sensation. And when the mind is actively aware of anything, it is necessarily aware of it along with an image. What, I'm, what, what I want you to see here, ladies and gentlemen, I've emphasized to you here the abstractive nature of human knowing. If the human intellect is going to do its thing, it always is going to come to something more by lifting it out from what is perceived by the senses. This is one of the most important practical things that I'm going to say here this evening. If we see this point about the absolute dependence of all human intellection and understanding upon sense images, then we will, we will have learned a key to all aspects of life, to real culture, to family life, to how to raise children, to how to cultivate our own spiritual life, when we understand that the human motive using this amazing power that we refer to called reason is fundamentally an abstractive one, meaning we have to begin with sense powers and lift something out from them. 
we realize the absolute dependence of all of our rational thought processes on the power of imagination. I'm going to define for you what I mean here by the power of imagination. I'm using the term as Aristotle and St. Thomas did. It's the power that stores and recalls sense images. Imagination here, he means the power, and this is one that animals have too, power that stores and recalls sense images. I love referring to the power of imagination. It's an incredible gift in human life. It's central for all higher animal life, but it's important in human life for reasons that's not important in animal life. We hold with us, ladies and gentlemen, almost everything significant that we've ever experienced with our senses, with our external senses. There's a storage place. This is what's referred to as the imagination by Aristotle and St. Thomas. It involves specific areas in the brain. It's where we retain those images. We have the power to retain these images even when we're not in the presence of things. Right now, probably none of your parents are in the room. They might not be in this world, but right now you can imagine them. And that's just using a sense power of you call up an image. That's a sense image. That's not using reason. That's just a sense image. You have sense images of all the things that you've experienced in life. When we understand how human intellect or reasoning works, we realize there is an absolute dependence of it on our power of imagination. So, whole other lecture in itself, but I'm just going to make this note now and move on. If we want to form how we understand things, we need to form our imagination. Well, a badly formed imagination leads to a badly formed understanding. A well-formed imagination leads to a well-formed understanding. It sounds oversimplified. I present for your consideration. I don't think it is. And it has great practical consequences. If you'd like, we can talk about that a little bit more in the question and answer. Let's jump back out after a little bit of technicality there and look at um, a few broader points. Knowledge is a way of having and becoming something. Knowledge is a way of having and becoming whatever it is that you know. This was fundamentally Aristotle's insight, and it's one of great power. When I know something, some way of being, whatever it is, tree, justice, mountain, life, whatever it is that I know, when I know it, I now have become something more than I was before because I have that way of being. This sounds, this sounds very abstract, but I hope you'll stay with me and, and, and consider the power of this. Look, if you will, at the next, skip over the short one. The short one is actually referred to in the bigger one. This is a, this is a, this is a tough quotation, but I think we can, we can do this together. We must, we must note that in, there's going to be a little bit of technical terminology here. 
We must note that intelligent beings are distinguished from non-intelligent beings and that the latter, non-intelligent ones, possess only their own form. For our purposes there, we can say nature. They possess their own nature. Whereas the intelligent being is naturally adapted to have also the form of some other thing. For the idea of the thing known is in the knower. Hence it is manifest that the nature of a non-intelligent being is more contracted and limited, whereas the nature of intelligent beings has a greater amplitude and extension. Therefore the philosopher, that's his nickname for Aristotle, says, the soul is in a sense all things, which is the quotation I put right above there for you. Would you consider with me for a moment this, this great quotation that's at the center of Aristotle's worldview. By being rational, the human soul is in a sense all things. Or in other words, it can become all things by knowing, really knowing them. This, ladies and gentlemen, I think, again, I, I, and you have to help me. Part of my problem is I, I always, I, I think about these things too much, and then so some, when I say these words, I've been saying them a lot, and I know they sound strange to you, and so sometimes you're going to have to help me understand. Maybe we can do that in the, in the, in the question and answer period. But to, I think this can help us understand uh, the points of my trying to have you see the, the darkness of where there is no power of knowing. You just have things that, I know this sounds funny to put it this way, you just have things that are what they are. A tree is just a tree. It's never, ever anything more than a tree. It's great to be a tree, but a tree is just a tree. I, like a tree, have my own nature. There's tree nature and there's human nature. But what makes human nature on an abyss apart, I can have tree nature. I can have anything. By knowing it, that way of being is now also, in a very real way, mine. What, what St. Thomas likes to focus on here is, is, to, is to see it this way. Everything else, God just gave its own nature to. In, in, in an unbounded act of generosity, to us, he gave us the power to be able, in a sense, to be like him. So watch. This, 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 this is an incredibly, incredibly cool metaphysical point. God, by his own nature, has the perfection of everything in himself. Say that again. God, by his nature, has the perfection of all things that exist in himself. There is no perfection that is not literally in God's nature. Are we all together? All right. But then, but then I'm going to mention this again here in a few minutes. Each of the things that God has created is just one little, little way, one little way of imitating his own perfection. 
He gives that thing this specific limited nature. See, his nature is not limited in any way. Everything that he makes is just this, this little carved out specific nature. So we, like all other things, have our own specific carved out little nature. It's called being human. If you're human, you're not a tree and you're not a rock. You're human. You're just human. Except he's made human nature in such a way that it can be like him in this way. We can have, by knowing, the perfections of everything. Not as though we become a tree or a rock according to the way a rock or a tree is, but in a very real way, we take on the perfections of those things that we know. Isn't this, isn't this is a, a beautiful metaphysical point to say God couldn't make anything that would have all perfections in it like he does, for only the divine nature can be that way. But if he makes a nature that is intellectual, then that nature can overcome, as it were, the limitation of being just this, because it can know, in some sense, everything. Aristotle saw this very clearly, and that is what he captured by this incredibly beautiful line, the soul is in a way everything, because you can have it in you by knowing. Quick point on truth. I told you I want to give you a few general considerations, jump, jump here and there, and then we're going to wrap up. What is truth? You've heard that question asked before. What is truth? I'm going to give you a quick definition of truth. The conformity of a thing and intellect. I think you'll appreciate this. This gives you another great background point to see the big picture from a new angle. Truth refers to the conformity. Conformity, literally kind of a oneness in form. The conformity of a thing and an intellect. You would never refer to some, there being truth unless there is a conformity of thing and intellect. If there's not an intellect involved, you wouldn't properly use the word truth. Truth always refers to there being a conformity. Now here's a neat point. You might have heard before of the metaphysical point of the transcendentals. Those things that you can say of all beings, like can you say all beings are good, so good is called a transcendental, all beings are true, so truth can be called a transcendental. How can things be true? If we just defined truth as the conformity of a thing and an intellect, then how could you say that a thing is true. Can you say that a tree is true? Generally, you wouldn't speak of it that way, would you? Let's set that on one side for a moment and go to something more obvious. What do we normally refer to as true? Refer to true, our knowledge being true, right? Do you have true knowledge? Is this statement that you've made, is this true? So what is, what is truth 
in your knowledge or in something that you say, when what's in your mind is what? Say it out loud. What am I about to say based on our definition? You have truth in your mind when what? So, when it conforms to the thing that's out there, right? So if I, if I make a judgment, 2 plus 2 equals 4, my judgment, 2 plus 2 equals 4, which is a judgment of my mind, is a true one if it conforms to the way things are out there. If I say that someone is wearing a green shirt, this judgment in my mind is a true one if and only if it conforms to what is in fact out there. If I say someone's wearing a green shirt and someone's not wearing a green shirt, then my judgment is not true, for there's not a conformity between what is in my mind and what is out there, right? If I think, if I say that there can be marriage in a true sense of the term marriage between a man and a woman, then you can ask the question, is that a true statement? Because does that conform to what the reality is out there? Are we, are we communicating? So you see, knowledge is true because what knowledge is always in an intellect. There's no such thing as knowledge that's not in an intellect, right? So knowledge is true if it is one with, one in form with, the same as what is out there. I'm really understanding what's going on if what's in my mind corresponds to that, how many times are you in a conversation with somebody and you're thinking to yourself, this person does not understand what is going on here? There is not a conformity between what that person is thinking and the reality. That, so you understand what truth is. So now, now let's come back to our other. Is there such thing as calling a tree true? My knowledge of a tree is true, right? When there's a conformity of my mind and the tree. We're together on that? Can a tree be true? What do you think? Can a tree be true? This, this lady in the, in the front has said that if there's no intellect involved, then it can't be true. St. Thomas going to agree with that? What, have you not been paying attention or something? No, just kidding. You look like my students. You tell me. Okay. All right. <coughs> You're the teacher. <clears throat> what are you paid for anyway? All right. Can a tree be true? St. Thomas is going to say the only way that you could say a tree is true is if in what it is, it conforms to some intellect. You see where this is going. So, St. exactly. The, the three-letter word God was just used in the front row here. Here's the simple, if truth is going to be a transcendental and you can refer to a tree as being true, then St. Thomas very beautifully simply says this, all things can be called true to this extent. They conform to God's understanding of them. And that makes them be true because there is a conformity between them and an intellect, namely God's. I'm going to let you ask a question right now. Go right ahead. I got you. Good, good, good question. I don't want to cut you off. I'm going to say this. I hear you, and, 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 and I'm going to repeat it, and then and I'm going to say it, and I realize just for the, for the sake of the recording, I probably should hold, I, I, I got a little out of bounds there, um, and got ahead of myself in my excitement, sorry. And we should hold that for the question and answer. You started to refer to how if there's some other people that have different understandings that can be at variance with one another, isn't this going to mess things up? Good question. Let's, let's, let's wait on that. Right now, if we're going to talk about transcendental truth, 
It's going to, this is why I just talk about transcendental truth. It's going to have to refer back to one intellect in conformity with which all things are true. And this is where the great philosopher Joseph Pieper will point out a creation metaphysics is in the perfect position to explain that the foundation of all truth, ladies and gentlemen, is this, that God makes all things according to his understanding. So this is going to circle back and make a very important epistemological point, and then we're going to wrap up. So hang with me here. God makes all things according to his understanding. So you can rely on God. All things that he makes are going to be in conformity with his understanding of them, and thus they will be true. Our intellect is very different from God's. This is, St. This, Thomas makes this point, it's in the quotation, but I'm, I'm just going to say it to you. St. Thomas loves to make this point. Here are things out there in the great world to be known. Here's our intellect. There's God's intellect. There, there is a conformity already between things and God's intellect. Things stand in relation to God's intellect of having been made by it. So you know there'll be a conformity between those things and God's intellect. The great drama is this. Will there be a conformity between our intellect and things? Will we, with humility and receptiveness, look at the world around us and take in things as they are? Our intellect will be true if we bring it into conformity with what is out there. If we do not, it will not be true. Our intellect has to achieve a conformity with the way things are. This, ladies and gentlemen, is why we study. In studying, we are trying to bring about a conformity between our thought and the way things are. We are looking to come in contact with it so as to be able to experience it as it is and take it in as it is and to come into conformity with it. There's, well, this is where, ladies and gentlemen, there's a profound moral aspect of the human drama of coming to know. It takes great humility. How many people insist upon dictating to reality the way they want reality to be as though they were God. And they are not. You cannot make something be so by deciding that it is so. Our intellect is true when it comes into conformity with the way things are. That is when we know truth. Just to close the loop here, and we need to close, this is just about my favorite point on this whole drama of, of, of the, the glory of understanding. From the viewpoint of a creation metaphysics here, do you see the great drama here, the nobility of the project that we are on? St. Thomas holds, will you look just at the second-to-last quotation on your page. 
The one bigger one above that makes the point that we just made. We don't need to read it together. Second to last one. For the knowledge of God is to all creatures what the knowledge of the artificer is to things made by his art. God is like the artist. Note how we, we can understand this point. If I'm a craftsman, I bring what I make into conformity with my own understanding. In that little way, it's like creation. Do you see how if I have an idea of what my little model is going to be, and I make that model, this model now conforms to my understanding of it. You see, fundamentally, that's when God makes things. He brings them into being according to his understanding, right? When we come to the world around us then, and we discover things as they are, what am I about to point out to you? If it really is the case that all things relate back to God's intellect as he's the artist, these things are his artifacts, the artifacts always what's the artist? The artifact always what's the artist? Reflects, shows forth, is somewhat like. God has put something of who he is into everything that he has made. It is true, for it is like unto his understanding of what it should be. This is right down to every single person you ever meet is a specific reflection of something in God. And when we bring our minds into conformity with that, we are bringing our minds ultimately in conform into conformity with God's own mind. Do you see what I'm saying there? Pope St. John Paul II liked to say things like, everything that God made is a word where he's saying something to you. To bring our minds humbly into conformity with the truth of things through humble, persevering, disciplined study of important things, not silly things, but of important things, is an exercise of bringing our minds into conformity with God's own mind. This has great implications, ladies and gentlemen, for how we should live, and so I just I have to end in the next 45 seconds. So I'm just going to say we've been trying here to understand understanding. I've asserted that we are made for understanding. I've taken us through a couple of different aspects of how it's done and what's involved in our coming to understanding. And now I've related it at the end here back to a whole creation metaphysics where if we are humble and are willing to be formed by things, we are actually in our understanding of things coming in contact with God. I'd just like to conclude by suggesting this is a great reason to change how we live, to recognize many of us have to live in the realm of the practical, for much of our day, and that's God's calling to us, but to realize a primacy of the contemplative, of our call, every one of us as human beings, to grow in understanding of the most important things and to have it be an object of our conscious intention and reflection and cultivation to grow in our understanding of God's plan is at the center of who we are. Thank you very much.
Thank you very much, Dr. Kudabash. Thank you. All right, does anyone have questions? Uh, thank you very much. What, how different would this discussion be this evening if Alexander the Great had not spread Hellenism through the Middle East and you were not dealing so strongly with an Aristotelian epistemology? Um, that's a very reasonable question. Um, if you were to pose that question to St. Thomas, I think um, he might, this is bold, I think he might try to answer it in this way. Uh, well, let me, before, let, me, let me preface it by putting it this way. Historical what-ifs are always, of course, just what-ifs. And it's, it is interesting how the human pursuit of wisdom has been very historically conditioned. At the same time, um, I would tend to take a very Christian view here where I think the historical pursuit of wisdom has been providentially overseen by God, and it ha the turns that it went through have been very much to our advantage and are part of His gift to us. What I mean by that is this, for instance, some of the fathers of the church said, it seems as though it almost were another revelation that God made naturally to the great Greek philosophers. They saw so clearly this provides such a foundation for Christianity. So from St. Thomas was certainly of the mind. Note how in our quotation he calls Aristotle the philosopher. I mean, if, we, if in general, it's, it's not that St. Thomas is turning Aristotle into Mr. Perfect, but fundamentally he is suggesting th the evidence is there in the writings. This man is an extraordinary instance of what, unaided by supernatural revelation, human reason can still come to understand. And so, for St. Thomas, in any case, who I fundamentally take as my teacher, Aristotle is, is in many, most often, is the voice of human reason. It's not, of course, it's still historically conditioned, and it's not, it's not unadulterated or perfect, but that fundamentally, his system, his principles, his insights are not so much his own as simply he saw the truth that can be known by the natural light of reason. For it's a very important part, for instance, of Christianity that there are these two lights. There's the natural light of reason and there's the light of faith. And the natural light of reason pr provides that foundation. It provides the insights, the principles that then come to full flower in divine revelation. So I, I, I find myself wanting to say this. If it hadn't, I mean, well, goodness knows what would have happened. Maybe it would be even harder then for us to have come to see certain of these things. In God's great providence, there are certain civilizations that haven't had the grace and the blessing, the mercy of, of having such great philosophy. That doesn't make it impossible to come to the truth, but I don't think I'd shy away from saying that might make it a little more difficult. So I mean, my answer is going to be, I'm not sure what it would look like, but I'm very, very grateful that um, uh, the truths of Plato and Aristotle so formed the, the Western world. Dr. Kudabak, yes. we have a question coming in online from Catherine in New York. She says, I would have thought it to be that badly formed understanding results in badly formed imagination. Why is imagination more primary in the intellect than understanding? Okay, great question. Um, the word primary is the key term here. First, primary means first. 
there's a firstness of imagination over understanding, but it's a firstness in formation, not a firstness in importance. So, of course, what's first in importance, that's a different kind of first, is, of course, the understanding. But what is, what is first in the formation of our worldview is the imagination. I say this is, this is simply clear from human experience. It's clear especially in the raising of children. If you want to form the worldview of children, you form their imagination. This gives great insight into the catastrophe of contemporary culture and the trashy, trashy television, trashy internet, trashy stories, trashy movies, trashy games that, that compromise not just the imagination of children, most all of our imaginations, both by its bad contents and by its overstimulation of our sense powers. These things are all threats to how human reason works. So now remember, th there, can be, there can be a kind of the, the bad understanding, certainly can feed back then into our seeking to look at bad things and can feed back to there being imagination. But in general, the, 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 the order of origin is that our, under, that our understanding arises from how we imagine and how we picture things. And this is why Christianity is always trying to be very careful about guard your imagination, guard your imagination, say no to the bad, and fill in the beautiful. Again, this is so important for, for every one of us in this culture. Great question. Thank you. Dr. Kudabak, thank you very much for coming out here. It's truly an honor. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, my question kind of goes back to the very beginning of your talk. You started out saying that the happy man knows. Um, immediately when you said that, my mind goes to pop culture and that iconic scene in The Matrix where the gentleman is offered the blue pill and the red pill. In the next scene, he's chomping on a nice, well-cooked piece of steak. It says, ignorance is bliss. Experientially, um, we know sometimes that to know really stinks. It's better to not know. Um, how do you answer that sort of powerful objection? Right. Good, good. Um, it, it's a little bit tricky. For, first of all, I'm going to say there are, of course, some things that people seek to know that they shouldn't. Not all knowledge is created equal. Right? I mean, we can, we, can, we can spend a lot of time running after unimportant things. There's a such thing, you know, the medievals spoke of a vice called curiositas. Translated, it's curiosity, but curiosity in English doesn't have the exact same meaning. But, but, but the, the modern university often is actually a place of kind of curiositas, seeking for various kinds of knowledge in a way that doesn't integrate them into a proper human life that sees the right hierarchy in why we should study things and study things in a certain order. So it's important to recognize there are certain things that we should seek to know more than other things. There is an order there. Okay, so sometimes we should avoid you know, these studies or trying to understand that over there. But nonetheless, I would, I would say more, more fundamentally, um, to see the truth, particularly when you're talking about more important truths, is sometimes going to lead to suffering and pain. But one of the key lessons of life is, isn't it, that suffering and pain and happiness are not incompatible. And so it's sometimes hard to come to know the truth 
and sometimes the truth, particularly say the truth about ourselves, such as what great sinners we are. St. Bernard is a big one on, we've got to stare in the face what a sinner we are, so then we can experience God's mercy, and then we'll be in a position to help other people know God's mercy. There's some painful knowledge there, and some people might have said, yeah, that ignorance of that would be bliss. I think they've got a misunderstanding of bliss. They've got a shallow understanding of human happiness. That's just a beginning to a, to a good question. We have another question coming on, in online from Alexandra. She asks, how does St. Augustine's epistemology, roughly Christ, the divine teacher, directly putting ideas into our minds, fit into epistemology as understood by St. Thomas and Aristotle? You can feel free to punt this the next time if you're going to address it then. Well, no, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to address that next time. That's a, um, that's a difficult question. I mean, the, the uh, epistemology of St. Augustine and St. Thomas have much in common. Um, but at the same time, there are certain differences. It would be very difficult for me to give kind of a short. Um, St. Thomas sees himself as very much in continuity with St. Augustine, although he, he uses Aristotle more than St. Augustine does because for St. Augustine, much of Aristotle actually had been lost and had not been refound, which is a fascinating historical aspect there. So it, it, it would be hard to give a platitude. St. Thomas very much sees himself as an Augustinian, but there are some different emphases. They're not contradictory, but there are differences in, in emphasis. I do feel like I should say something to this, this, to this gentleman's real fast. May, may I just, I'm not sure, I'm, I, 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 that, uh, is that all right? That I, I got exactly where you were going to go with the, here's the thing, sometimes different people seem to have different truths, right? And sometimes people want to say, well, what's true for you isn't necessarily true for me. There certainly is a, a truth to that, to this extent. People can have different perceptions and think that different things are true. We can be thinking very different things from one another. That doesn't make there be two different truths. At the end of the day, I think the very fact that there is an objective truth in the conformity of all those things to the mind of God that is prior to uh, the human intellect being engaged at all, there already is an objective order that first of all has to be discovered. And so fundamentally, we're on a project of doing this together. I, I, I'd like to do it this way, kind of let's look at it in a, a, a non-adversarial, kind of community way. Rather than looking at the people who don't see the truth as the bad guys, look at them as people that we need to help to the extent that we can to bring along to come closer. We all need to be humble to realize there's always other people that are going to see more of the truth than we do. Are we willing to hear one of the hardest things for humans to do is to recognize when we're wrong. How incredibly central it is that we have that humility to realize sometimes I'm going to be wrong. Help me know, please, when I'm wrong. If we have that attitude, then we'll also be in a better position to go to others and say, and with all due respect, now sometimes it doesn't fit, right? But when we can, say, I'd like to invite you to look again with me, and together I think we'll be able to come to understand that reality better. For there's just one truth of reality, though sometimes someone's seeing something that I'm not. But we're all trying to come into conformity with the same fundamental reality. Hello, Dr. Cuddleback, thank Hi. you. Um, what do you, would you say for uh, Aristotle? He didn't have the benefit of today's science, today's biology, DNA, and so forth. What, what do you say when uh, you talk about a dog not knowing, but yet 
the argument today from our science teachers is that you know it's just brain stem, stems and cells and the biochemical processes in our brain that are allowing us to have this knowing and not and, and therefore dogs do know but at a much lower level than we do. How would you respond to that? You, you, you raise a very big, um, very big issue. There's absolutely no doubt that science can see much that's going on in the brain, say, in our brain, in the brain of a dog, that Aristotle never could have seen. Of course, he knew certain things were going on in the brain there. He just doesn't know nearly as much as modern science. But here, here's the thing. I'd say the, the problem with modern science when it goes in the direction that you were just doing there is it, modern science has a bad tendency, not all, I don't want to overgeneralize, but, but often to, to be reductionist, to, ha to, have a, to make a great discovery, but then to say, okay, so then it's simply this. I think what Aristotle would say to someone who is saying, for instance, about human knowledge, well, all it is is what's going on in, in, in the brain. He'd say, look, I'll, I'll be the first to grant that you've had incredible insight into what's going on in the brain. But there are certain things that we need to see here that regardless of what is going on in your brain or not, Aristotle has certain, and here I'm going to say, philosophical insights which stand above. They're not contradictory to, they need to be related to, but they're distinct from a biological insight. And a kind of philosophical insight is going to be one that says you cannot reduce what we call intellection down to a simply a brain process. Now there's an argument for that, and it's a very difficult one. But there is a philosophical argument that Aristotle makes that says that you cannot reduce thought processes to a material process. He didn't have nearly as good an understanding of any material process as science does now. But coming to a better understanding of the material process itself does not change the argument that Aristotle already had given that the thought process cannot itself be reduced to a material process. So that argument can still be addressed and understood on its own. Do you see what I'm saying of the, the development in what goes on, for instance, in the brain is a genuine progress and something that we can learn from. But as soon as you turn the corner and then say, oh, okay, well then those things that Aristotle assumes that you had to have a soul for, that means that there has to be something immaterial, well now we understand that that's not necessary. Modern science would have to give a philosophical argument that thought can be reduced to materiality. Aristotle is giving an argument that can't be reduced to materiality, which I'm, I'm not even going to try to, to, to summarize at the moment. So, so it's, it's, it's a matter of being overly reductionist. That, 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 that's going to be my, my, my brief uh, point there, that we can and should grow in our understanding of the material processes. But we still should be able to have insight, as Aristotle did, that there's certain key things going on in human experience here that just simply can't be reduced to the material processes no matter how complicated they are. Thank you very much, Dr. Kudenbach. Thank you. Okay. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, 
please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.